Okay, let's start. We are in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, beginning in verse 10. We've got just seven verses to run through tonight, and uh, uh, they're very concise verses. They do a great job um, holding each other together, and so it's going to be springing from idea to idea to idea. Um, With this general challenge that I want us to think through tonight, which, which goes something like this. Is there a difference? If I were to just ask you, do you believe there is a difference, a noticeable difference between people in the church and people in the world? And don't play games, don't play word games. Don't go, well, everybody in the church is in the world, so there is no difference. No, no, no. You know what I mean by that? That there are those who are in the church, they are described in the Bible. If we were to try to take a look at how uh, the word might the Bible might describe them, it would call them saints. The word literally, uh, it's actually two words, usually is just the holy ones. To the saints in Ephesus, to the holy ones, the hagios, which is the word for holy, the hagios, the holy ones. Um, That's the way the Bible describes the church, and then it describes the world, not as saints, but, and I mean this in more of a, a stricter sense, let's just call them sinners, And I guess I'm just asking you, are there those who, uh, is there a difference between these two? More and more, what I actually experience when I talk with people, I'm not, I'm not asking about like my own assessment. I'm talking about like everybody's assessment. Um, if you were to ask me what I think I would get if I were to poll the people every Sunday, and I'm not, not a collective poll that's being influenced by one another, but no, I'm going to single-handedly find the people. Well, nobody sits in the front row on Sunday. I'm going to single-handedly find, and you're usually up here, brother. I'm going to single-handedly find, find, find Tom and kind of move down. Move, I'm going to go, go down through the whole, the whole list, right? I'm going to go down through all the people. I'm going to ask them, is there a noticeable difference, a significant difference between the people in the church and the people in the world? I would guess that the vast majority of them would say that the answer is no. There is not a vast difference. There is not a significant difference. Um, Maybe you even felt this way when I described the church as saints, holy ones, and the world as sinners. How many of you are going, no, but we're all sinners? Anybody else think that? That's what I was thinking when I was writing it. Hey, but we're all sinners. Is that the way the Bible talks about us? Is that the way the Apostle Paul, who is writing this letter to his faithful child, Timothy, who is in right now the city of Ephesus, sent there intentionally to appoint elders to lead the church. Is that the way that the Apostle Paul describes it? If I were to ask him, or if I were to say to him, Paul, listen, um, you don't know about Sunnybrook, but let me tell you about it. Man, I love these people. They're great. They are just awesome. They've been putting up with me for 13, almost 14 years. It's been absolutely wonderful. My wife and I love it here. Our kids love it here. Um, you know, we just, we, 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 we worship, and I, I describe all these different things. I say, but here's one thing that I find fascinating. 
Um, I, I asked all of these different people, and he said, how many people do you have, you know, attending your church? Well, I got, you know, 1,100, 1,200 people. Wow, 1,100 people on a Sunday. Oh, yeah, no, they, they show up, two services, we come, and we sing all these things. Anyway, Paul, I was reading some of your stuff from Second from Timothy, and then it made me think about some things, and so I decided I was going to ask the people in my church, you know, the, the hagios, the holy ones, I, I asked them if there was a difference between the people in the world, the worldly people, and the people in the church. And like 90% of them said, no, there really isn't a difference. Not a significant one anyway. I genuinely believe the, the Apostle Paul would go, what are you doing wrong then? What, 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 what is broken here? And uh, I, I think it's important for us to at least recognize that maybe some of your and mine, okay, our, that some of our comfort by saying that there is no difference is not a good thing. For us to be okay with the fact that there is very little difference. Uh, I had a, a gentleman in one of my Bible studies ask a very real question. He, he believed um, in, in the midst of this conversation that there really isn't a difference between the church and the world. If anything, according to him, his neighbor is, is, a, is a far better person, is a far more noble person than he is. His neighbor's a really nice guy. His neighbor is all, I mean, I, I think my neighbor's probably better than I am. Hmm. Like, what does that say about him? But what does that say about his neighbor? Now, I want to make sure I come back because I want to I wanna talk about that again. I'll spell it like a Canadian. Um, and I, I want to come back and I want to address that because I, I think even that question I believe actually needs to be rethought. Not to defend ourselves um, or to overly convict ourselves, but to rightly discern what my friend was even saying there because there's a part of that which I think we as followers of Jesus Christ should be convicted by. And then I, I would challenge my friend with this. And then there's a part of it that you don't see your neighbor right. And we'll talk about that as we close. But I want this to hang over you as you read through these verses with me. I want you to be thinking about what the Apostle Paul is saying about himself and about Timothy and about the elders and about kind of what that, the, the continuing ministry that is going to happen through the church. Notice, and what really made me pick up on this, is at least three times in this text, the Apostle Paul is going to stress a very strong, emphatic, in the, in the, in the, in the Greek, de, which actually is but, and it's a strong, emphatic contrast. But, okay, and that's an important to see. One of, one of, my, one of my favorite uh, contrasts that we actually see in, in Paul's writings is in um, Ephesians chapter two. I, 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 this is one of my favorite verses. It, just, it describes how bad, Paul's describing the Ephesian people, how bad they were. Well, let's, you know what, we have time. Turn there. I only have seven verses to do tonight. So, why don't, why don't we turn there and take a look at this, and you can circle the, the but in Ephesians chapter 2, and take a look at how he describes this. I, I think it's very interesting. This is written to the same church that Timothy is ministering to. Verse 1 says this, and you, speaking of the Ephesian people, and you were dead in the in, you are dead in the trespasses and the sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. I love that contrast. And it's interesting, and, and, and you'll see why this really matters in Timothy, is that God is wanting Paul to, because I believe all the Bible is inspired by God, God wants Paul to tell the church in Ephesus that I know you once were this. I know you once were living and you were satisfying your fleshly nature, which is not just sex. It's like when someone hits you, you want to punch them right back. It's like when someone calls you a name, you remember that. And I'm, not, I'm going to make sure this score gets even. Okay, That's worldly. Okay, That's not, that's not human. That's worldly. Jesus gives a whole different way of looking at revenge and anger and spite and being wronged, doesn't he? A whole different answer. Sometimes when we think about being fleshly, all we really think about are kind of the sexual type sins. But when you read Paul's list, sexual sins are clearly one of them. But a lot of them go like this, bitterness and anger and rage and malice. That's what Paul warns against, by the way, also in the Ephesian letter. But here he is describing these people them, and you were bent on this, and you were by your nature, apart from God's intervention, you are an object of God's wrath, but God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ with the great love with which he loved us. I love how the NIV, or sorry, I love how the ESV make, instead of just calling it great love, I love the great love with which he loved us, because it reminds us of the, the power of God, and then this is what bothers me. If God's love is so great and so powerful, then how can we say no? How can we say there's no difference between us? What does that say about God's love or God's power or God's spirit? Forget what it says about us. I really think the greatest accusation is against him. And the Apostle Paul says, I know you were bad, but God, because of how great he is, and how strong he is, he has done a mighty work in you. That same contrast is actually found in this text. I know it says however, but it's actually but. Okay, let's take a look back at, at, verse, at verse nine of this text actually. Second Timothy, actually I've got it on a previous page. Verse nine, what does he say? But they will not get very far. Remember, he's talking about the, the bad people that are trying to deceive and are trying to cause some problems. But they will not go very far, for their folly will be plain to all as it was of those two men. So the Apostle Paul is describing, just like in the days of, of, of Moses when you had those Egyptian magicians and they were trying to undo the work that God was trying to do by the time that their snakes got swallowed up by God's snakes, everybody knew we're playing with two different kinds of power. I mean, truly, you had magicians and God. If you think David Copperfield's kind of neat, you should see what God can do, okay? One's a, tri one's a trick. One, and that's a good thing. That one is deception, and the other one is a radical reconstruction of reality. That's supernatural, okay? 
So he's, he's saying, hey, listen, the good news is, yes, there are those who are going to be deceivers, but it will become plain to all. That's the contrast. However, I like but, but you, however, Timothy, but you, in contrast to the deceivers, in contrast, are you ready? To the world. And, and I don't think what he's saying here is, and you know, Timothy, um, I just, I think you've never made a mistake. And I don't think he's saying, Timothy, you're really as bad as everybody else, but I'm going to try to give you some, some encouraging words here. I'm going to pretend you better than you are. No. I think Paul is speaking rightly of Timothy. I think he is speaking accurately of Timothy's convictions and of Timothy's commitment and of Timothy's holiness, of Timothy's righteousness that he has, all by God's grace and by God's mercy through the transforming work of the Holy Spirit. You, however, in contrast to the charlatans, you, however, have followed, and the NIV actually uses the phrase, you know about, but it's, 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 it's actually deeper than that because the word is, is often translated follow, which goes back and it underlines this. And, and I'll tell you, I was deeply convicted by this when a, few, a number of years ago, um, a number of us as pastors went to, went to St. Louis to learn about a new way to help explain what discipleship looks like in the average life of a believer. And we walked away from that going, they didn't tell us anything that we didn't already know, but they said it in such a way it feels like it's new to me. I mean, it really molded and shaped me. And it basically was a, a system or a way of thinking about leading people through understanding what God wants from them and then, then them responding to what God is asking for. Not, not, not trickery, not magic. We weren't, there was no, you know, there was, there was no, no magic eight ball. But it literally was sitting down and asking some very real questions. Noel, what do you believe God is saying to you? How do you believe that God is working in your life right now? Let's think through this. What part of that is scriptural? What do you think that God, and then, and then what do you think you should do from that? And then let's meet next week and let's see how we're doing. Okay, great. Now, Noel, let me show you what I think God is doing in my life. It's this reciprocal of asking, where is God leading? Where is the Holy Spirit speaking? Where is the word of God convicting me? And then how am I following in that? And as I'm reading that, I'm going, like, that's discipleship. No wonder people struggle. Remember the example that I used about dancing? No wonder people struggle. When I go, you know, the foxtrot, do it. Um, I don't know what to do. And when I stand up on the stage, and I, actually I can't foxtrot, so I had to pick something better. But let's, I, I, let's pretend I can't foxtrot. And then I begin to do it, and then I go, so you do it. You know, okay, it's, it's easy to watch you do it. It's impossible feels like it's impossible for me to just watch that and then to just do it like you. And so what is the idea that the apostle Paul has down for the discipleship model? And you know what it is? It's this right here. Hey, Timothy, I need you to keep your eyes on me and I'm going to spend a lot of years with you. And what you're going to see is the life of a follower of Jesus Christ by watching my example. Do you guys have any idea I'm speaking to all of us, including me. Do we have any idea how critical and how slow that discipleship process is? I, I think that one of the reasons why the church, big picture church, and then we're part of that, right? I think one of the biggest reasons why we have failed so much is because we have allowed there to be this disconnected fellowship, this disconnected um, following 
and everybody has to try to figure out marriage on their own. And everybody has to try to, and I mean godly marriage. And then everybody has to figure out what it means to be a husband kind of on their own. And everybody has to figure out like, what it means to be a wife on their own. And, and they didn't have the best examples as moms and dads. And by the way, I had a great example as a mother and a father. And then Andrea and I left when I, I think she was seven and I was nine when we moved from Canada. We'd just recently been married and uh, sort of felt like anyway. And I remember looking at her when we're in these tiny little churches and we're looking at each other and these church people are looking at us. You know, and I'm a sophomore in Bible college, so I'm brilliant. And these people are looking at us and going, okay, like, show us. Like, show us what marriage looks like. And we're going, no, no, no. We need you to show us what marriage looks like. And the one thing I'm so grateful for my wife, and the one thing I'm so grateful for people like Bud and Helen and others in our lives, is that they did show us. And we knew to look. And it has taken us um, 27, 28 years-ish to figure out what we figured out. And Paul says right here, but you, in contrast to those deceivers, but you have followed, you've known, you've seen, you've looked at, you've modeled, and then watch this list. And by the way, he uses the word my once, and then it's just a whole bunch of things. <laughs> okay, so he doesn't keep saying my this and my that. In Greek, it's just my and then a list. Look at the list. And, and by the way, teaching is up front. And notice I've kind of drawn some connections to how critical teaching is to the Apostle Paul. We... Um, I hear this a lot in the church. Oh, it's not just about what we know. It's not just about education. And I say, okay, I, I even agree with you. It's not just about education. Um, Paul and Jesus seem to make a really big deal about education. Which it's always, I always find it funny when Christian people talk about how education is not that big of a deal. Because I usually get this. You know, that's the problem with church. It's all about what we know and we need to be doing other things. And then I'm going, oh, okay. And then they turn around to their kid and go, and by the way, you only got a 33 on your ACT. You know, we're going to get you a tutor, we're going to get you five tutors. And I'm going, chill. They only got a 33. Or, you, know, you got a 17 on your ACT. Hey, it's just education. It's just college. I love to look at the inconsistencies. People that love to say it's not about education. Hmm. Many of them don't feel that way when it comes to the education of their children. It's the spiritual education of their children. And I would say we all need to be careful about that. So hear me, teaching is not everything. I totally believe in that. Man, it's critical. Paul has it, number one. Notice what you followed, Timothy. Notice what you know about. Number one, my teaching, that word is used 14 times in the pastoral epistles alone. <laughs> that's not in the New Testament. That's in the pastoral epistles. You, however, have followed my teaching. And then next, my conduct. And the word there for conduct in the NIV is translated way of life. Like the way that I live. You watched how I lived my life. And as I'm living my life, you're looking at that. Word is actually found only in this particular text, that, that phrase, my conduct. My aim in life, it, that word is usually translated, aim in life, it's usually translated purpose. Like you, you know, Timothy, like my purpose in life. And notice the text here. How many of you guys have a kind of a rough idea what Romans 8.28 says? You know the text, Romans 8.28? For God works all things to good. For those people who are called according to his what? According to his purpose. Same Greek word. Um, Ephesians chapter 1 verse 1. Take a look at this text here. It's interesting that when you talk about you have seen my purpose, 
God works everything out for the good according to his plan or his purpose. Ephesians 1.11, the same word. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works out all things in accordance with his will. Paul sees, I love this, Paul sees his life and everything that is happening in it as in accordance with God's purpose and God's will. Now, and by the way, before you just go, oh, wow, I bet you he's the only one ever in the history of the world. Do you think Paul is going, yeah, and by the way, I'm the only one? Or do you think Paul would go, no, we all are. Like, we all are called like this. We're all called to live like this because the purpose is not that we all become apostles like Paul, capital A apostle. The, the purpose, is, the purpose is that, that Paul is describing here is a way of life that is in conformity with God's wonderful will, which is what? That we are made in the image of Jesus Christ. And Paul says, you watched me do that. Look at, um, look at 1 Timothy 1.9 as another example, the use of this uh, particular Greek word. 1 Timothy 1.9 No, it's not First Timothy one nine. Ugh. What is it? Somebody else know? Second Timothy one nine. Okay, that was my mistake. Okay, Second Timothy one nine. Yeah, because I'm reading First Timothy. Second Timothy one nine. Thank you, Paul. Second Timothy one nine. Look at this. I'll read back and I'll grab verse eight. There it is. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our own works, but because of His own purpose and grace, which He gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. He called us according in his purpose, to his purpose. And he's saying, and look at what I'm going through. That fits this, that, that, now I know I really love this text because it fits really well with what he's about to say. So Timothy, you knew what it looked like to be a follower of Jesus Christ because you saw my purpose in life. Next, my faith. And then he says, my, my faith is just the, the normal word for faith. It's interesting. When I say faith, something, love, how many of you go faith, hope, and love? And the greatest of these is love, right? That's Paul's phrase from 1 Corinthians 13. Here, he changes it. Now, I don't know, I mean, maybe, you, you, I think you're making a bigger deal of it. Yeah, but some people a lot smarter than me are making a big deal of it too, so I'm just gonna let you. The phrase faith, patience, and love gives a context of what he is about to say. That what Paul is recognizing is that our, our faith or our overall trust in Jesus Christ, our love, which is not just our love for God, but our love for each other and our love for kind of understanding exactly what's going on in the world and, and God's, God's plan and purposes. And in the midst of this is patience. You, you, you noticed my patience. And a very kind of an interesting concept as it kind of extends over because it's my patience, my love, and then as it continues on, you'll see the context that patience and love and faith bring in. What is the context that all of this is happening? Look at how it continues. Very end of verse 10. My steadfastness, really that word is the same word for endurance that is used over and over and over again in the Bible. Endurance. In what context? Verse 11 explains it. My persecutions and sufferings. And that's where it goes, wow, that does sound like 2 Timothy 1.9. That I, in the midst of my ministry, in the midst of my difficulty, in the midst of the attacks against me and all around me, 
that what you actually saw was my patience. And so often when we talk about patience, we, it literally it's like in line at Walmart. That's what we mean by patience. Or a child, mommy, 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 you're testing my patience. Now the Apostle Paul is describing something that is, um, that is even deeper than that. Not just this genuine patience that we should have for one another. But Timothy saw my patience, um, I like this, with like other followers of Jesus Christ that aren't getting it right. And the Apostle Paul did not abandon them. He didn't just go, you know what? I, I met so many people that have given up on church. The Apostle Paul never did. You think the Apostle Paul ever saw some, or ever had to deal with some Christian people that weren't acting like Christians? Think he had any of those? Yeah. He had whole congregations like that. Corinth. And you know what he was with them? Patient. The Apostle Paul would travel from city to city. He's about to list three of them. Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra. Lystra. You can actually go, if you want to read these, you can go back and take a look. Acts chapters 13 and 14. The Apostle Paul is going to these cities and he is dealing with nothing but hardships, persecutions, beatings. And what is he saying? And I am patient in all of it. That takes a whole different context. And he's saying to Timothy, you, however, in contrast to these joke magicians, these deceivers, these scoundrels, you have followed my example. And one of my examples is in the midst of opposition, in the midst of persecution, you saw my, my patience, my steadfastness, my love. That, that totally shapes what I think the Apostle Paul is describing by love in this context. So kept catching it there in verse 11, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at these three particular cities. So the Apostle Paul goes to these cities, he preaches the gospel, they treat him terribly. And then he goes on to say at the end of verse 11, which these persecutions I endured, yet from all of them, the Lord rescued me. And I find that to be a somewhat interesting phrase. He rescued me. I want to go, really? <laughs> if I came back from a mission trip and they said, hey, how did it go? Well, like they stoned me. The old-fashioned way, you know, like with rocks. And they threw them at me and I was in, the pri I was in, I was in prison for a while. And then, and you know what? I'll tell you, I just, I felt like the Lord's hand was on me the whole time. He rescued me. If that's rescue... Like they stoned him and left him for dead. How many of you, after being treated like that, go, well, you know what? Here's the good news. The Lord rescued me. It's, it's almost like one of my favorite verses in the scripture, Acts chapter 20, verse 24. Um, Paul says, to the Ephesian elders, interestingly enough, it keeps going back to Ephesus. Um, to the Ephesian elders, he says, although I consider my life worth nothing or as valuable to myself, if only I may finish the task that the Lord Jesus Christ has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. And the apostle Paul was left for dead. He was beaten repeatedly. He was ignored, rejected. And he says, yeah, God totally rescued me. Um, that particular phrase is actually used in chapter four, verses 15, or verses 17 and 18. Look how he describes the Lord. This is 2 Timothy, actually. So 2 Timothy Verse four, uh, chapter four, verse 17. Um, he's describing against those who are opposing him. Okay, I think this is interesting. He describes all these bad people. 
And then he says this in verse 17, but the Lord stood by me and strengthened me so that through me the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. The Lord strengthened me. That, that idea of the Lord standing by him and strengthening him is that same idea. We'll see in verse 18. The Lord, will, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. By the way, he is about to have his head chopped off. He is about to be executed. And the apostle Paul would say, see, didn't I tell you he'd rescue me? Didn't I tell you he would deliver me? Um, headless? Oh yeah, oh yeah. But here's the good news. The head doesn't matter. The, the head attached to the body is not like my primary goal. Paul's primary goal was not to die with a head. It wasn't. His primary goal was however he ended up dying, to die faithful. It's very interesting how you and I, maybe I'll just blame myself the most, how I might use the word rescue Versus how the Apostle Paul uses it. In all of these hardships, and all of these instances, you know what he says? Man, isn't that awesome how the Lord rescued me? How he never left me? How he strengthened me? Paul? Man, I mean, I, 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 I dealt with this quite a bit. I, I had a lot of friends in ministry. And man, ministry's hard. Nobody likes to be at my church. And all these difficulties. And where is God? Um, why don't we just read First and Second Timothy for a while? And, and by the way, should I ever feel alone and like nobody loves me at Sunnybrook? You have my permission. You'll probably be sitting with my wife when you do this to say, oh, poor Jim, let's read 1 Timothy together. Let's read 2 Timothy together. And we need to remind one another, even in the most adverse, in the most difficult circumstances, like the Lord will rescue us. He will deliver us. He will. He will. Yeah, but I don't want any pain or discomfort or problems or difficulties. Yeah, well, then you got the wrong faith, sweetheart. You just do. God never promises. But God, in, in, in Paul's conversion, what did he say? And I will show this man how, he, how much he must suffer for my name. That was his promise to him. And, 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 and him, the apostle Paul, at that time Saul of Tarsus, he will be dragged before kings. And I'm going to show this man, by the way, and it becomes, this is the beauty of it, this, this difficulty becomes one of Paul's greatest joys. How? And I'll tell you how. I get really emotional when I think about this. Because he really did love Jesus more than this world and more than his life. And that's not some Sunday school answer. That is so true. So how can we say there is no difference between The Apostle Paul's given a pretty strong list. And now he's going to look at verse 12. Indeed, he says, and this is what's very interesting. Um, I've seen this verse misused, and um, sadly enough, by me. Uh, I remember being young, and I remember preaching this very enthusiastically, and I would have a sermon, usually from this verse, and it would go like this. Indeed, the scriptures say, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Have you been persecuted? Then you're not trying to live a godly life. What's wrong with you? And then I give examples of godly people in the Bible being persecuted. And then I ask you if you've been persecuted. And I don't let you use being teased in the eighth grade as an example. 
And I just keep going on and on and on. What's wrong with you? You're not trying to live a godly life. I mean, if I were to ask you to raise your hands, a number of you would. If I were to say, how many of you read this verse and go, I'm not living the right life? Yeah. Actually, that's not what Paul is saying. Paul's point here is not, hey, by the way, I want you to know how to gauge whether or not someone is living a godly life. Here's how you'll know. Are they being persecuted? That's not what he's saying. If you look at the context, what Paul is saying is, indeed, all, and I love that, the reminder here of that word all, pantas, literally means like, what I'm, what I'm describing here is that I'm not the only one. <laughs> this isn't just about me, because the Apostle Paul's just given this long description of what he's gone through. And, and we do this, don't we? Well, that's Paul. That's Paul. He's not saying all, i.e., that if you're not, then you're not. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, hey, like Timothy, it, it's not just me, it's you. And, and right now in Ephesus, it's going to be a number of you. And that is true, by the way. He's not saying, and this is how you will know a godly person. No, wrongly interpreted. He is showing it as a contrast to I'm not the only one who is going through this. And he is bracing Timothy. He is bracing other believers in the city of Ephesus for a very real struggle that they are going through. Indeed, all will be, uh, all in general, uh, who want to live a godly life in that context will be persecuted. Verse 13, but number two. (laughs) Now it says while, but notice this, um, bad people, verse nine. But you, however, Timothy, you followed my example. Now, verse 13, but, (laughs) and so I kind of wish it was Justin, Timothy, you'll follow my example and it'll be great. But the problem is, is that the magicians from Egypt are still hanging around. And so while you are following my example and my love and my faith, my steadfastness, my patience, how, how I'm enduring through the greatest of persecutions, but evil people and imposters, going back, I think particularly to what he is describing earlier in the chapter, the magicians, the deceivers, but evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse. Now, that's just one word. So I hope you don't mind, but I want to kind of show you how that word is used in this particular uh, two, two letters, First and Second Timothy. Go back and take a look at First Timothy chapter 4, verse 15. The phrase from bad to worse. It's not just two Greek words. Bad to worse. No, it's, it's actually not. It's, it's one concept. And if you were to pick a word to try to describe how it is sometimes translated, it would literally be the term progress. Or as they would say in Canada, progress. Okay? Progress. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 15. Notice how it's used in that context. Practice these things, immerse yourself in them so that all may see your progress. Same Greek word. So, Timothy, what I want you to do is I want you to do these things. And then people will actually see you like developing, growing in them. Which, by the way, is what we should expect every believer to do. To see their progress. That's why I'm telling you, if, if you've been a follower of Jesus Christ for a long time and no one's recognizing a difference, something is broken. Something is wrong. When I was younger, I used to just tell you you need to try harder. Have you tried harder? Have you thought about trying harder? And and I don't think that's just the only issue. I think it is far more complicated than that. 
I am more and more comfortable by encouraging people more and more to reflect on who Jesus Christ is and what he has done. And that from there, if you want to call that an effort, then that's a good effort. Understanding who Jesus Christ is and what Jesus Christ has done and asking, is that really what you want to do? Do you really want to follow him? And then beginning to walk through the process, well, then what is the Holy Spirit saying to you? And how do you feel the Holy Spirit is leading you? What do the scriptures teach about that? And how can we become more like him in our understanding of him and our obedience to him? And when that happens, you know what people will see in us? Progress, progress. It's the same word, from bad to worse. In Timothy, when you do these good things, you will grow and you'll you'll progress. Next text, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 16. So the book that we're in, chapter 2, verse 16. Notice what he says in verse 16. But Timothy, avoid irreverent babble. For it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. Do you see how it's translated there? More and more. So notice what he keeps saying. Like, Timothy, if you focus on these things, you're going to progress into someone who is more holy and more righteous and more like Christ. And by the way, if you decide to focus on this this babble, these irreverent and uh, irrelevant myths, then you're going to become more and more ungodly. Look at 2 Timothy 3.9, which is a, a, a section that I just read a few moments ago. Notice what he says about those two bad magicians. <laughs> but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all as it was for those two men. They will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all as it was for those. They will not get very far. Is that same idea? as like their progress will trip them up. So the Apostle Paul is describing these two paths that we go down, the the, the path that has a commitment to Jesus Christ, a commitment to follow the ways of his teaching and of his conduct, his aim of life, his faith, his patience. That will lead in one direction, and then those evil people and imposters will will continue to progress, will continue to, to grow in their wickedness. And then the two things that happen to them, which is very interesting, is that number one, Notice this, they are deceiving. And uh, I think we need to remember that. I think, I think it is good for us to stop and to reflect that how, how the devil operates. If you go back and read the scriptures, the devil operates by lying and deceiving. If you go back and you look at every instance where the devil does something, we often give him almost these magical powers. Now listen, he is an, if you were to ask what his category of being is, he's, he's angelic in his being created as an angel, a fallen angel. Um, so he's, 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 got, he's got something going on for him, whatever that looks like. But everything he does, biblically, this is how the Bible describes him, fits under God's direct control. And if you don't believe me, just read the book of Job. The devil's running around doing whatever he wants. Hey, Job, what have you been doing? I'm just kind of going around looking at stuff. And then God says, God says, hey, have you considered my servant Job? The devil says, hey, yeah, but he doesn't serve you for nothing. Like, literally, let's be honest. The only reason why he serves you is because he has no persecutions, no hardships. Like, all you do is do good for him, and that's the only reason why he loves you. That's a, that's a, that's a huge accusation against God. The only reason why these people worship you is because you give them stuff. It's the only reason why. 
You know what's scary about that statement? The devil's not always wrong when he says that, is he? Now, he's wrong about Job. But do you, know, do you think there are any, any believers, any people who go by the name of Christian who are just in for it, what they can get? One of the ways that you can sometimes know is when they don't get what they want, they get mad and they get angry and they give up on God. Job says the only reason why he's serving you is because, why? Because you've been blessing him. And then God gives him power. God gives him authority. Okay, devil, accuser, that's what his name means, liar, deceiver, I give you this power, but you can't do this. He restrains him too. Everything the devil does, he's not running around doing everything. He does everything under God's, God's sovereign control. Do you know that? This is one of the biggest reasons why I have no fear of him. Because greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. I have no fear of him. There's nothing he can do. Because by the way, the number one thing that concerns me, okay, is that when I stand before God, um, the accusations leveled against me will result in my damnation because I've, I've actually got a record. I've got some sins in my past. And uh, if God holds those against me, I'm in trouble. But if Jesus Christ has died in my place and I've trusted him for that, then what can the devil say against me? All the devil can talk about are the sins that have been forgiven by Jesus, which just brings about the praise of God. Boom, gotcha. And so I have nothing to fear. I have nothing to fear in him. The devil lies. The devil deceives. Go back and read the scriptures. That's what he does. He's a liar. He's a deceiver from the very beginning. That's what he is. That's why when Jesus comes, what does he, how is he described? Not as a liar and a deceiver, but what? Someone who removes the, the blindness. He removes the confusion, doesn't he? God takes away the misunderstandings. God reveals the truth, and the truth will what? Set you free. That's why the Bible talks about, hey, don't worry. Now listen, there are going to be people that are going to be trying to deceive you, but here's how the Bible talks, and you'll think it's overstating it, and I will say, well, maybe, but not totally. But don't worry, the elect, those of us who are followers of Jesus Christ, we cannot be deceived. And I'm telling you, that's true. We cannot be deceived. And do you want to know why? Because God has given us his spirit. And because God has given us his word. And because God has given us his people. That's why I genuinely believe that I cannot be deceived. Now, by the way, I start not agreeing with his word. I start abandoning his spirit. I start forsaking his people. You're in serious trouble. Uh, th this is one of the biggest reasons. Um, man, I, Paul Ryan, I remember, I wish I had the book with me right now, but Kevin DeYoung in his book, uh, In the Hole in Our Holiness, he describes this and he says, I do not know of a single person. Now you can take it up with Kevin DeYoung. He's a pastor in Michigan. Um, so you better go soon. Be, no, you, no I, I would wait until it gets warmer. But in Michigan, he says that he has never met anybody who has grown in their walk with Christ who has abandoned the church, the fellowship of believers. I just don't know anybody who has forsaken the body of Christ and has become a more faithful follower by doing that. 
And what is the Apostle Paul describing here? That's why the whole question about can you be a Christian and not be a part of the church, because I won't say go to, be a part of the church, is ludicrous, biblically speaking. Absolutely ludicrous. And the Apostle Paul is actually describing people who are going to be deceiving us. And one one of the reasons why I'm a part of a church is so that I will not be deceived by him. That I'm not just reading the Bible by myself, but I'm reading with other followers of Jesus Christ. And and together, under the guidance and the direction of the Holy Spirit, as the scriptures teach, we cannot, I'm telling you, we cannot be deceived as we stay true to his word by his spirit together. And then you should have said amen. Thank you, Tom. Okay? Like, I I want you to know that. That's why it is so critical That being a part of the fellowship is not just going to church, but it is being connected to the body to keep us from being deceived. And then I think this is interesting. And being deceived. So these these false prophets, these false teachers, this is the part that makes it so complicated. Because how many of you can really be deceived by somebody because you go, but I really think they believe it. Like, have you ever... Have you ever talked to crazy? You get talking to crazy, and you know what makes you think that you're the one that's crazy? is because they don't blink. They keep going, and they're holding on to it, and you're going, maybe I'm the one that's crazy. Like, maybe I'm the one that's missing this. Because, man, they are so passionate about it, right? I mean, I've, I've had this happen to me. I, I've had some great people in my life, great teachers in my life, who begin to wander, begin to go astray. And, and their passion doesn't fail. And then sometimes they become more passionate. They become more convinced and more excited. And it can throw me sometimes. Because you would think, right, that if, if somehow they were like maybe being deceived, they would begin to wonder or, no, the Apostle Paul makes it very clear. Don't be, don't, do not be impressed by my own or anybody else's. I mean, I'm telling you, don't be deceived by my passion. If my passion does not line up with the word of God, God, may I be damned. Don't get impressed by someone's convictions and passions. No, 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 no. It is in alliance, allegiance, submission to the word of God. Because I could be, okay, I know I just said I couldn't be, so, but pretend I'm a false teacher, okay? I'm a false teacher. Not only am I deceiving you, but I don't even know I'm deceived. That's how the devil works. And the only thing that can bring light, that can bring truth to that, is the Holy Spirit. The Word of God exposes it. I I love watching, and and you can see it in a number of different examples, but how many of you have looked at people that are saying things that are just absolutely crazy, and you're listening to them describe it? It could be, you know, uh, uh, sometimes I've I've seen it in, um, in how people believe that society should work. I've heard people say the craziest things in the last few months. And the one thing that always throws me is they... I think they believe that actually is a good idea. That's the dumbest idea I've ever heard in my life. And they just are like, no, this is the greatest idea ever. Yeah, false teachers. When Rob Bell decided to begin to preach that there is no hell, that the God of love would never do that. He would never, ever, ever. How could the God of love send anyone to hell? You don't understand the scriptures. And I, 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 I read that book the first time, and I, I just remember going, he really believes this. I could even see some of the seeds of that book in previous books, actually. 
And honestly, it began to throw me because he was a trusted church leader. And he really believes it. And he's wrong. And, and, and I, I, don't, I don't know if I kind of want to put him right in that whole false prophet category, but I'll tell you, he, he, he makes me incredibly nervous on a lot of things that he says about some pretty critical issues, okay? And it's amazing how the Bible describes this deceiving and they're deceived themselves. That's why I love the word. It sets us straight. Verse 14, let's go down the stretch. Verse, uh, verse 14, and this is the, the last day. But, okay, so we got, but you are different, but they are gonna keep getting worse. But as for you, so he wants to end there, I want you to continue. The Greek word there for continue is meno, which Jesus uses over and over and over again in uh, John 15. Do you guys know what that, what that chapter is about? The vine and the branches. Jesus keeps saying, meno in me, and I will meno in you. What is that? Remain, continue, stay firmly attached to. Okay, so that idea is huge. Stay attached, stay connected to who he is. But as for you, Timothy, continue, remain in what you have learned, learned and what you firmly believed in. That word there is actually just one word, and it's uh, the word for believe, but it's kind of a, a variation of it, which means fully convinced, okay? But it's interesting, its root is to believe. And so often when we talk about believe, we use it in a very soft sense. Yeah, I don't know if I know that, I just believe it. The Bible doesn't talk like that, by the way. We do. The Bible uses the word believe rather strongly. For whoever believes shall have what? Eternal life. Believe, you have eternal life. Not, yeah, I don't know about Jesus. I just kind of think about him a little bit. That's not the word believe in the Greek, okay? And this is a stronger word than that. Timothy, you have been firmly, uh, the NIV uses the phrase convinced. You've been convinced. Knowing, notice how much this teaching and knowledge continues on. Knowing from whom you've learned it, the pattern of modeling, and how from childhood in uh, chapter one, verse five of this text, it talks about his mother and his grandmother, Lois and Eunice. From childhood, you've been acquainted with the sacred writings this, the scripture. So no, notice this. When I keep saying, like, you can't be deceived, and we can't be deceived, why can't Timothy be deceived? Well, because, Timothy, you know. Like, you've been, you've been taught this since you were a kid. It's, it's what I love when I think about orange, and I think about right now there are a bunch of little kids down that hallway learning stuff, I would argue, as important as anything I teach in here. Did you know that? Every, right now, all through this building, like this isn't the place where, um, where, the, where the best things are learned. I wouldn't even say the deeper things are learned. No, in here we talk like grown-ups. And there is a certain depth to that. I don't apologize for that. But right down the hallway right now, some kids are learning some pretty amazing stuff. And they will, they will move through this building and our goal is not that, and by the time they're done, we'll hope we'll have a good kid for you who will actually behave in college. Honestly. Not really what we're going for at all. No. We hope that as they enter into college, <laughs> that they continue to follow the Jesus they fell in love down that nursery hallway. And actually, I 
I don't have anything new or different to say than what they're learning right down that nursery hallway. I may use bigger words. I, I don't know if they're learning the Greek down the hallway. You've learned a couple of Greek words tonight. But in the end, they all mean the same thing. Continue, remain, be steadfast, be patient. And it's good for us to remember that. It's good for us to even to care for that, for those of you that maybe haven't been down the nursery hallway in the last little while. You haven't been in a, a youth service for a while. Man, it'd be maybe important for us to actually stop and to think about and to pray for instead of just being frustrated or complaining about where things are going. Notice what he says to Timothy. But Timothy, you firmly know this and you know whom you've learned it from. So your example to those other ones matters a lot too. It's not just me teaching. It's me modeling that matters. And the word there for able, it's the word dunamos in the Greek, meaning power. But don't think, don't, don't think powerful. Um, this, this is the, the word that I want. It is empowering is what the word literally means. The scriptures are in fact empowering. They, they are able to do something in us. The scriptures are. And, and that is why it's so much more than, ah, oh, you should read your Bible. No, it's that you should understand the scripture so that you can know God better and obey him more. That grow peace is not just us having new facts in our minds, but understanding the true character and nature and purposes of God, and then us aligning our lives with his character, nature, and purpose. That's what growth is. That's what we care so much about here as a church. Why? So that God would be glorified in all of our lives. That is our purpose. And he says, Timothy, these scriptures, these sacred writings, are able to make you wise, literally, to teach you. And, and, and uh, you, you've heard this statement, wisdom is the application of knowledge. What, what, what produces in you the application of knowledge? And the answer is the scriptures. Um, a number of years ago, I was deeply, deeply, deeply convicted that I had spent too much time with my kids giving them Jim's wisdom instead of scripture. And if I could go back and do something different, I would give my kids more scripture. I would explain to them more from the scriptures. I don't know if you're listening to our podcast right now. We just ta finished taping another podcast today on prayer. And right before, I don't think it made the taping in the first one, but right before Drew Moss, God bless him. He always just makes me feel terrible because he's better than me. And we're sitting across from the studio, or we're sitting across on the microphones, and, and Drew looks at me and says, guys, listen, let's, let's make sure that as we're saying these biblical truths, that where we, where we can find like good scriptural basis, like we help our people see where that's coming from. Yes, Drew. Actually, I loved it. it it's good for us to do that. Like we're not, I'm not here just giving advice. I, I want to I go through these scriptures. And these scriptures make us wise unto salvation. Wise, I use the King James, wise for salvation. If you want to know about why you need to be saved, that's in the scriptures. You want to know how to get saved, that's actually in the scriptures. Before you listen to me, read the scriptures. Wise for salvation, and then notice Paul can't help but talk about this. How do we get, how do we get saved? Through what? Through faith. But not just through faith. We don't believe in faith in faith. It's not just a generic faith. He doesn't end the sentence there. Through faith in what? Through faith in Christ Jesus. What saves us is not our faith. What saves us is Christ Jesus. We connect to him by faith. 
by trusting the work that he has already done in our place. Verse 16, one of the most famous verses of scripture. For all scripture is breathed out by God. One word, literally theos, God, and then pneumakos, meaning breath, God breath. The scripture is God breath. It is empowered. Notice the power, the dunamis. It is the power of God. God breathes and his words come out. And that is what we believe in. For all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for, first thing he lists, teaching. Over and over and over again. We can make little of it. We, we shouldn't. Teaching. For reproof and correction, I believe that those are the first two things that come after teaching because Timothy in this book has given some pretty serious, serious instruction about reproof and correction of those people who are doing it wrongly. So Timothy, get them. Set them straight. And then next, training for righteousness. That the man of God, now, don't be, literally that the phrase there is, is describing more of like the people of God, okay? Kind of that mankind and really talking about all of them. So that the man of God, that's us, the people of God, may be complete. It's not the word teleos, meaning perfect. Um, it, it's actually a, a word that, that, that describes almost constantly this idea of, um, of, of being brought to holiness, The word of God may help every man become complete and completely equipped for every good work. Now that word, every good work, is used a number of different times. Paul uses that exact same word when he describes what he is doing. He then says that elders, by the way, are busy doing a very good work in the, in the, in the, in the leading of others. He says deacons are involved in doing a good work and should be involved in doing good works. Timothy, by the way, he says in chapter 4 of 1 Timothy, you need to be about doing good works. He even says about the widows. Remember this section? This really kind of blew me away in 1 Timothy 4. He said, man, don't, don't help out the widows if they're not involved doing good works. You remember that? Like, I know it's hard for us to stomach. He says, yeah, if you know some widows and they're just kind of being busybodies, don't help them. Yeah, that's awkward. But he says, no, don't help them. Now, by the way, if they're doing good work, then, then, then I think you should actually assist them, but not busybodies. That's what he says. I guess one of my favorite passages about being equipped for every good work is actually also found in the book of Ephesians, chapter two, verse 10. I began there describing this idea that we were terrible and then God, but God came down and he breathed into us. And now all of a sudden, we have been saved by grace through faith. And what is Ephesians chapter two, verse 10? You know what that says? For we were prepared in advance. All of these things happened in advance for us to do what? To do good works. So let me close with this. Neighbor. I said to my, my friend, so let me see if I get this straight. So here you are in your house. You have a cross on the top because that's what all Christians have on their houses. Jesus fish on the car, cross on the house. Um, usually over the mantle of the fireplace. And then you've got your neighbor, okay? They've got their little house. And, and all the work that you do and all the work that he does is the same? Well, yeah, you know, all the good things he does. He probably does more good things than me. I said, really? Because here, here's what I actually see happening. And I, this, this friend of mine actually is a, is a follower of Jesus Christ, genuine, legit follower of Jesus Christ. When, when you go out and you do a good deed, 
Like, why do you do a good deed? Well, so that God might be glorified. Okay, so you went out and you did a good deed, so God might be glorified. And then as God is glorified, then he is praised, not just in this world, but actually in this world. That's a big idea to the Ephesian church, that God is, is recognized. Think of, the, think of the story of Job, that God is made much of in his world. And so when my friend is out doing all these good things, he does those, not for his own sake, not for his own benefit, but he does them actually ultimately for the glory of God. And your friend over here, why does he do, why does he do good things? Well, you know, for, for people, okay. I mean, not, not bad, kind of noble, right? He's helping other people. Are those two things the same? Not at all. And so I said to him, so the only way in which I'm actually gonna really believe that you and your friend are in any way comparable is if I somehow completely ignore God. And I'm not gonna do that. Listen, I get what, I get how you might be thinking. Is there a difference between the church and the world? And you go, no. I mean, we struggle in our marriages like they struggle in their marriages. And we, hear me, And can we be more holy? What would my answer be to that? Yes. And we need to strive for that, okay? We do need to be different. But as we strive to be more holy than we are, only by the Holy Spirit, not by our own works, but by the Holy Spirit, as we begin to do that, please do not underestimate the power of all the little things that we do because the fact that we do them for a completely different reason fundamentally changes the game. And we need to remember that. We need to really be careful just describing the work that we do here and the good things that we do here as being the same as everywhere else. No, 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 no. The house that we make on our parking lot for another family in town for the glory of God is very different than the other house made on the other side of town for the benefit of others. Do you know that? The Apostle Paul says those two things are not the same. And none of that credit goes to us because we've already said who we're doing it for and who is that. Profound difference between us and the world. Let me pray. God, thank you for Jesus, for what he has done, for who he is, and for who he has made us. Thank you for freeing us from ourselves, for giving us a greater purpose than just being kind. Thank you for giving us a purpose that extends far beyond this world. And as much as I love people, I am really prone to being selfish or frustrated or angry or conceited when I serve their purposes or our purposes only. Only you can genuinely set us, me, straight. And so I thank you for the example of Paul and Timothy and many others. I thank you for the examples that exist in this room, men and women, who get exactly what I have been teaching tonight and who are doing it faithfully, Father. Um, the more that I think about it, there is a radical difference from the people who are called by your name and the people who are not in this town. May that never be anything that we uh, become selfish or elitist by. But may it always cause us to be humbled and, Father, grateful for the Holy Spirit that is alive in us. In Christ's name, for your glory alone, amen. Um, you do not want to miss Sunday. Mark Scott, my favorite preacher in the world, is actually going to be right here on that stage.
And I told my mom and dad about it, and my mom said, where are you going? I said, I'm going to be sitting right there. I'm not having Mark Scott come down here and miss it. So I think you really will be blessed. He'll be mad that I've been kind of talking this way about him, but he really is a phenomenal, phenomenal communicator. Loves the Lord. More important than his communication skills, loves the Lord. I think you'll be blessed as we conclude Matthew 23 with words from him. So we'll see you Sunday.